first, I'd like to thank uh, Kairos, who is sponsoring uh, the last two days of meetings that we've had with the uh, ISACOS uh, Shoulder Committee. Uh, I'd like to mention that the ISACOS uh, meeting has been moved to November 27th to December 1st in Cape Town, South Africa. We have a great uh, webinar today on failed rotator cuff repair. And uh, Emil Calvo will be handling the questions. We have about 20 minutes at the end of this where we'll be able to answer all the participants' questions. So without further delay, because many people have been waiting now for a half an hour, uh, we'd like uh, Professor Etoy uh, to provide uh, his wonderful lecture. You can share. Thank you, uh, I'm Eiji Toy. It's my great honor to give my talk twice today. And I'm going to talk about uh, biomechanics of uh, repair failure. My disclosures. There are various causes of repair failure, but they can be categorized into two. One is weak tendon and the other is weak bone. Weak tendon can be strengthened by augmentation. This is Mihata's report augmentation used by uh, fascia lata and uh, with augmentation there's no retear cases but without the retear rate was four percent and in addition to augmentation we need to consider the stress dissipation we can increase the number of suture anchors or we can consider the stitch configuration to dissipate the stress we can increase the number of sutures per anchor, and we can make the suture thicker. This is a comparative study between suture and tape, and the, both the contact pressure and the failure load was significantly higher with use of the tape. But the same group reported the short-term clinical outcome, and according to them, there was no difference in retail rate between suture group and tape group. So we need to know more about this. The double row stitch configuration is commonly used, especially the transosis equivalent repair is very common. There are two techniques to tie the medial row or untie the medial row. And the previous biomechanical studies show that there's no difference between them. However, we measure the strain of the tendon and the strain of the distal tendon significantly decreased after the cup repair, whether you tie the medial row or not. However, the strain of the proximal tendon increased significantly only when you tie the medial row. That means if you tie the medial row, there is a huge strain gap between the distal and proximal tendon. The finite element model show that there is a high stress concentration at the level of media row if you tie it. These findings may explain why the proximal tendon tear commonly occurs after the transosseous equivalent repair. So when we do this, we recommend not to tie the media row. For the weak bone, medication is very effective, but it takes a long time. And at the same time, we need to achieve the best performance of the anchor. 
For that purpose, we need to insert the suture anchors perpendicular to the bony surface. How far should the anchors be separated? Four millimeters is not enough. Six millimeters or greater, then we can achieve the best performance. And this is true for both the screw type anchor and coil type anchor. All suture anchor is the same. It's much smaller, so they should be placed at least two millimeters apart. Sometimes we use an interlocking anchors or so-called body anchor. And using body anchors, we can increase the pullout strength by 20 to 30%. That is good. However, remember that if you separate these two anchors six millimeters apart, then you can achieve a 100% increase in pullout strength. Bone cement augmentation is effective, especially when you use a screw type anchor, the pullout strength is twice as large. However, if you use the coil type anchor, then the cement augmentation doesn't work. This is a bioabsorbable cement and the regular cement without cement. There's no difference in the failure load and no difference in displacement. So if you want to use bone cement augmentation, you better use the screw type metal anchor. But sometimes the bone may be too weak to use suture anchors and we need to find them out before surgery. So we calculated the pullout strength using the finite element model and we found that the pullout strength of the patients with failed anchors was significantly lower than those with stable anchors. And using the cutoff value of 75 Newton, we can find a group of patients with a high risk of anchor failure. And in those patients, we use the transosseous repair with endobotin to avoid the breakage of the cortex. So in summary, for weak tendon, we use a tendon augmentation, and also we need to consider the stress dissipation. For the weak bone, we need to achieve the best anchor performance, and for that purpose, anchor should be inserted perpendicular to the bony surface, at least six millimeters apart with bone cement. But if the bone is too weak, avoid using suture anchors. Thank you for your attention. Great job, thank you very much. Now I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. C Felix Savoie from uh, the United States who will lecture us on releases and debridement to set up for revision success. Buddy? Thank you, Dennis. All right, here we go. Um, hopefully this is coming out okay. So this is my topic on fail cuffs. One I think is very important uh, my conflicts are listed on the Academy website. So the question people often ask is why do releases and especially in instance of failed rotator cuffs? Well, EG just showed you about a problem about tying medial rows where you get increased stress along the tendon edge if you tie knots. Um, and most of us like to tie knots and put that down. So failed surgery has multiple adhesions. This picture on the right, you see this interval contracture, the inflammation above the biceps and below the supraspinatus tendon. 
Secondly, we've all, all known that an increased uh, or a lessened acromiohumeral distance causes problems, and a proper release eliminates that superior displacement and increases your acromiohumeral distance, and this makes a repair more biomechanically sound, whatever technique you want to do. And releases restore normal gliding and movement of the muscle and tendon and can help the early arthritic shoulders by decreasing these joint reaction forces and improving your local environment. So what are releases? Um, it's a removal of abnormal structures, adhesions, sutures, scar tissue, all these things that cause problems and contractures about the shoulder. It also involves selective cutting of normal structures, the capsule, the rotator intervals, and the, especially the coracohumeral ligament, which uh, in, a, in a tear and in a revision situation will prevent that normal gliding. So what can we release? We can release the capsule, all or some, depending on the status of the shoulder that you're dealing with. We really need to release the subdeltoid bursa and elevate that deltoid off the humerus in a failed cuff. There's a lot of lateral arm pain that occurs because of those adhesions. The rotator interval structures, the subacromial bursa. Some people like to release the posterior interval. I'm not a fan of that because I think that those tendons combine together. And then the suprascapular nerve in the front or the back of the shoulder often needs to be released. So in general, when you're going in on a revision cuff, you need to remove all the structures. If you look at the top left figure, you have a giant knot sitting on the bone. Nothing's going to heal to that. So you have to remove that. You have a suture on the bottom left uh, sitting in the middle. And then you have this, this huge defect in the bone, and which basically is a disvascular process. So releases increase as tear size increases. So we want to release that inferior capsule and let the head move down. That's very, very important that, that we do that. And that's something that's often overlooked, especially that posterior band. You have a loss of internal rotation in these failed rotator cuffs, and it's because of those contractures. Always release the coracohumeral ligament. And in massive revision cuffs, I always do a 360-degree release, release the suprascapular nerve, and release everything. It's the only way I know that you can put things back together. Here you see it's releasing under the tendon. So again, a failed cuff. The edge of the rotator cuff is right above the, the small cautery. I favor using a hook because I like to be very gentle and precise with my releases, but there, there are shavers that have abladers on them. There are more robust uh, release devices. And so if you are, if you like to use that, there's no problem. I don't like a lot of heat in the shoulder because um, I think it's cartilage destruction. And you can see on this one, if you look at that humeral head, there's some cartilage damage already. And so we continue that across the top. Um, apologies to my French colleagues, but I'll leave the biceps in most cases. I like to use it as a graft. It may add to stiffness down the road, but we get it out of the groove later on. And sometimes we just cut it or tenotomize it or tenodice it, but we do that later. And so here you see the edge of the cuff sitting way down the bottom. We have to be able to move that up. And the only way to do that is to take out these adhesions on the posterior shoulder. If you don't do that, you will not be successful with your repair. There's too much tension on the repair. Subacromial releases are a routine part of rotator cuff repair. I like to take the, uh, the medial bursal tissue off the overlying bone, um, and I'll start that in the front so I can slip in that tissue plane. I think it's very important that it lay down on the medial cuff. We know that blood supply to the tendon comes from that medial bursa, and I usually try to control my bleeding by measures other than a cautery. I want to preserve that blood supply. I don't want to ablate all the bursa. 
Of course, you have to see and understand that, but it's really nice to release it off the top and let it drop onto the cuff as you see here, as opposed to just taking it all out. Under the cuff, we wanna release that as well and we'll release that along the tear size. You can do that with an elevator uh, or a, uh, um, sorry. You can do that with an elevator or um, uh, a shaver, whatever you would prefer. Um, and then corco humor release. Many people want to know about this. And so we're looking from a lateral portal. Anterior is to your left. And we have some bursal tissue on the lateral bursa, which is filled with inflammatory cytokines. So we like to remove some of that. Um, although as Gus's work has shown us, it's quite cellular. And as we move forward, as you see here, the conjoint tendon will come into view on the left. We'll see the coracoid. Um, and then we'll be able to continue this and be able to see what's going on here in the front and outer part of the shoulder. As we start our, uh, we'll move that forward a little bit. And so as we come over, you can see this very thick tissue, a suture knot over here to the right. And as we take this down, this is part of the scar tissue. If you don't free this up over the base of the coracoid and move into this, you'll never get that supraspinatus tendon to move where it needs to move to. And so when we look at how this manages the rotator cuff, you can see here that here's the coracoid, here's the conjoint tendon, and we come over the top of it, and this is a complete release with a bit of a slide. And if we come back to our failed cuff, now we pull the head down and you can see how it just brings biomechanically this rotator cuff back to where it needs to be. So again, a critical part of the failed rotator cuff. Anterior interval slide was described by Joe Toro. It just continues that humor release. Now we're on the opposite shoulder and we can come in and go, go as far medially as we want. And then lastly, suprascapular nerve release. I do a two retractor technique using two Navisor portals to do this and use a, a switching stick basically to hold the artery and nerve out of the way. Often change, usually change to a punch, but certainly if you feel comfortable with your shaver, you can do it that way. And then posteriorly, as I said, I rarely would do a posterior interval slide. I think there are other methods to work on that part of it. So release techniques, I, I really do believe that knowing how to do releases makes every tear repairable. The decision to repair is a pre-op decision based on atrophy, tendon quality, imaging, patient expectations. Um, so I think that's very important. Releases are one key to successful repair and management of the failed rotator cuff and the stiff shoulder sound fixation, biology, and rehabilitation are also essential parts of this. Thank you. Very nice. Now I would like to move to uh, Dr. Anthony Romeo, who will speak on uh, introduction repair with biologic augmentation and synthetic graft. Dr. Romeo. Good morning, everyone. We've heard a lot about a variety of ways to manage the biological challenges for rotator cuff surgery. And I'm going to present to you some ideas of where we're going with regards to grafts and scaffolds. My disclosures are updated regularly at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery website. We know from the literature that in fact, we've had a hard time demonstrating significant improvement in our overall management of rotator cuff disease when it comes to the clinical outcome. In other words, we've been good with this for a long time. We've also noticed that it's been difficult in many cases to demonstrate that we're able to get better tendon healing despite a variety of different uh, ways to try to manage that. 
And so there's a question is, uh, how can we improve on this 10 to 20% failure rate that seems to be evident in many studies from around the world when it comes to repairing single and two tendon rotator cuff tears, which will have an even higher rate. We're very well aware of the mechanical uh, technology and innovations that have been made. And despite improving the strength of these devices so that they're actually stronger than the tendon, we still have this very challenging uh, failure rate, uh, even when a solid repair is done. So we've recognized that beyond the mechanical aspects, there must be a biological component that we have to do a better job with. We have some really amazing strategies and have developed some really clever techniques to create tremendous force of fixation. And yet some of these, especially two tendon tears, continue to come apart. How can we further augment this if we can't make this any stronger? We've known about this for a very long time because with open surgery 30 years ago, the results were somewhat similar. We think we have made some improvements, uh, but it's not like we've completely eliminated the problem at all. We do occasionally get some great reports, but overall, when large studies are done in multi-center groups, single tendon tears have a 10 to 20% failure rate, and two tendon tears are more than double that. And that's very frustrating. We see these tears repaired, and then the original attachment site oftentimes doesn't go all the way down to where we put it. There's a gap there, and that leads to weakness and then potentially further coming apart. And it's not only the healing that's a problem, it's also the rate of healing. We really struggle with our patients who say, what do you mean I can't use my arm for six weeks? And what do you mean I can't get back to my activities for after three months, and it may take up to a year to recover? we've seen that it really does take a very long time for rotator cuff tendons to heal. So we know about PRP and proteins. We know about these pluripotential cells that people are trying. What we really haven't figured out very well is a vehicle to hold those uh, materials in place, those biologically active materials in place, and possibly add some mechanical advantage. So the biologic functions of these extracellular matrix scaffolds, it can hold on to the tissue, it can hold on to the cells. And as you see in this uh, example here with the video, the blood goes on top and it spreads throughout the entire scaffold, but it doesn't go beyond that. So it acts as a sponge holding these materials in place. And that may help us in terms of getting them to remain active. Some of the early ones had tremendous promise. We all heard about the small intestinal submucosa of the pig, and we thought this was really gonna make a big difference. And it worked very nicely in the animal models, but as soon as it was tested in the human models, we found out it really didn't make enough difference. And most people said it's because it didn't have any mechanical strength to it. I'm sure that was part of it, but at the time we were also not focusing on the possibility of it being a vehicle to bring biologic material and keep it there. And we've tried cow, we've tried horse, we've tried pig, and we have a long ways to figure this out. Recently, the bovine type material and a thin collagen patch was used to try to improve the healing rate of partial thickness rotator cuff tears. And what was developed as a theory was that there's stress on these tissues causes these tendons not to heal very well. And if we can reduce the stress a little bit and capture the biological environment, we would get these things to heal. And in the preclinical studies in the sheep model, that's in fact what it showed. And it was quite remarkable at the Colorado State Veterinary Lab where they saw at 26 weeks, there was new tissue. It was 
in integrated better into the bone. And there was even in some of them, uh, the development of a Sharpie fiber formation, which was very, very attractive. And this went on to become a device that's now available. It's a thin sheet that goes over the top of the rotator cuff with partial thickness tears, and it's been expanded out to full thickness tears, especially ones that have been repaired and to augment it. And the clinical results have been pretty good. And there've been some early reports, including one from one of our speakers, Dr. Savoie, that I'll go over shortly. One of the nice things about this device is it's, it's a very clever insertion device. So it's relatively easy to add over the top of your repairs. And this again may hold on to the biological environment. And this goes along very well, which was seen in the preclinical studies with the sheep and then followed up with that early uh, small study uh, from some of the developers of the product. And then recently, Dr. Savoie and his group at Tulane down in New Orleans showed an unbelievably great results with 90% or above healing rates with these two tendon tears. And as you can see from the differences between the two, it goes right over the top of your repair site. And this may in fact be, it's not a mechanical device, it's actually sort of a vehicle to hold the biological environment. We've had a problem with the performance gap between the two, and that is that with synthetics, it would be nice to be able to use them, but the biointegration hasn't been so great. We're worried about infection. With the biologics, the cost is remarkably high. Uh, the device that was just shown is in the United States is more than $5,000 per case of US dollars. That's a lot to add to every single rotator cuff surgery. Some may argue, well, if you get it to heal, that's, uh, that's okay. Uh, but in fact, maybe the synthetics will offer us a less expensive and just as effective way to do this. When we look at things like nanofiber scaffolds and the way that it plays out under electron microscopy, it looks very similar to the extracellular matrix. And in fact, it behaves in a way that really improves the way the cells move. Dr. Levine, who's on this, has shown that the diameter and the overall orientation can play a role in terms of how the fibroblasts grow, differentiate, and how they move along these little fibrils almost as if it's a highway. And cell migration is a very important part of getting these things to heal. And we've shown in rats that we see a significant increase uh, in the genetic markers for tenocyte growth. We've seen that they move very nicely uh, when we put them on these scaffolds. Again, very favorable information. Going back again to the sheep model, which is oftentimes the primary preclinical model that's used using the acute tear model, as you see here in this diagram, a tenon is torn, it's the infraspinatus, which goes along or translates with the supraspinatus in humans. We do a double row transosseous repair, we add the scaffold, we then uh, sacrifice the animals at six, 12 and 18 weeks, and we test them. And what we found was a remarkable difference in the strength uh, that occurred. And actually, if you looked at it qualitatively, you could actually see the fibrils of the tendon going into the bone in those animals that had a scaffold that was placed between the tendon and the bone and those that did not. And you can see even at 12 week data, 75% stronger. That was very, very remarkable. And what was really great to see is that form follows function. So the scaffolds showed tremendously better organized fiber formation and the development of what looked like Sharpie fibers. And that was really carefully inspected. And in fact, that's what we saw is that there was an integration and these collagen fibers going right into the bone. And this, as you see here, you see a healthy tendon to your left and then new bone formation. And then actually the fibers going in in the animals that had scaffolded more than 50% of the time. That is a remarkable development because that is going to really make a difference in terms of healing strength, but also as speed at which this heals. 
So in summary, we've done a great job with the mechanical aspects of rotator cuff repair, and you've heard some clever ways of doing that. We have looked at patches and grafts, big thick ones to provide some additional mechanical value. We really need to focus as we have been on biologicals, but it's not just the proteins and the cells. It has to be the vehicle that actually holds them in place and creates a biological environment favorable towards healing. And so when we put these in there, adding a scaffold, something that holds onto it and keeps it in place is likely to be a differentiator in the future for how well we can get our tendons to heal. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Dr. Romeo. Now we'd like to introduce uh, Giuseppe Milano from Italy, who will speak on review of a superior capsule reconstruction for treatment of failed rotator cuff with biceps, fascia lata, and dermis. Okay, so my talk is about SCR with different graft sources. This is my disclosure. So um, different joint preserving options exist uh, uh, to treat a massively repairable rotator cuff tears and the arthroscopic superior capsule reconstruction is probably one of the most uh, uh, promising uh, proposed in the last years. The rationale of the superior capsule reconstruction as proposed by Dr. Miata some years ago consists in uh, a, a recreate uh, the superior capsule to keep the humeral head reducing to the glenoid socket to reduce superior migration of the humeral head due to massive rotator cuff tear. Indications for superior capsule reconstruction are massive contracted tear of the superior posterior superior rotator cuff with the superior migration of the humeral head, an intact or repairable uh, subscapularis, and an intact uh, teres minor, no severe rotator cuff teratropathy, and the technique can be also used in case of revision with the cuff repair, and also in, uh, in case of pseudoparalysis, as proposed by Miata and Steve Burkhardt. Superior capsule reconstruction can be considered also an option to uh, improve uh, the um, st mechanical strength of repair of, of, of rotator cuff. So some others propose the superior capsule reconstruction in com combination with a partial calf repair in case of massive uh, tears, or also like, a, in, like a, a, an augmentation with an over-the-top incorporation of the native calf over the superior capsule, reconstructed superior capsule. So regarding the, 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 the graft, there is no agreement uh, uh, about which is the ideal one. Fascia lata, a cellular dermal matrix, or long head of the biceps more recently have been proposed at different graft sources. My Miata uh, in biomechanical studies uh, put a threshold regarding the thickness of the, of the graft, and he showed that the eight millimeter tick provided greater stability on the human head respect to the four millimeter graft. Potential advantages of fasciolata related to its availability and its ability to complete, recenter the humor head in comparison with, uh, with dermal matrix on, based on biomechanical studies. Uh, concerns are related to donocide mobility, even if Dr. Azevedo showed and, and published a technique, uh, a minimal invasive technique to harvest the graft. 
German matrix has uh, for sure advantages related to uh, availability and no donor sign morbidity. And animal studies showed uh, its ability to resemble normal tendon and structure from a microscopic and histological standpoint. Some concerns are related to uh, mechanical strength and, uh, and uh, maintenance of mechanical properties over time after implantation and for sure the cost. So systematic reviews published in the last two years uh, about comparison uh, between the fascia lata and, uh, and the dermal matrix showed uh, basically the same findings. So almost all the authors reported um, improvement in pain, a range of motion and functional scores at a short-term follow-up. And overall, and uh, uh, some failures reported with a wide range. But uh, when we compare data between fascialata and dermal allograft, we found that uh, graft failure is reported more frequently in the, in the, with the use of dermal allograft. And this is confirmed in uh, different uh, systematic reviews from clinical studies. And also the most recent published this year show the same uh, difference in terms of uh, uh, failure risk failure rate, uh, which is higher with the use of dermal allograft respect to the use of fascia lata. Biceps is, is a possible alternative which has been suggested in the last years. It has some potential advantages because the donor side morbidity is pretty limited. Um, it has a very low operative time and, and cost, it's easy to manage during arthroscopy. So it doesn't require any specific surgical skill and biomechanical studies show an adequate mechanical strength and the ability to recenter the humeral head as, uh, as much as uh, showed with, uh, with the use of fascia lata. So in the last year, several uh, technical notes have been proposed with some technical variations um, in the use of biceps uh, to recreate the superior capsule, but none of them reported really results. So some uh, promising results in, uh, in a case series have been reported in terms of improvement of functional scores, active range of motion and pain relief. And imaging uh, studies showed 80%, uh, more than 80% of structural integrity at two years. So results are really promising. And the biceps was also proposed as augmentation in a repairable massive rotator cuff repair to protect the cuff uh, from, uh, from uh, early re-tear. Some conclusion, superior capsules for sure revolution is a very promising option to preserve the joint in case of massive irreparable rotator cuff tears, but it potentially can also lower retail rate in repairable tether cuff tears, but longer follow-up are needed for sure. No ideal graft exists actually for, uh, to perform a severe capsule reconstruction. Fascialata and dermal allograft show a significant improvement in functional score, ROM, and acromiohomal distance gaining, but the lower failure rate was reported with the use of fascialata, so probably it, sh it should be considered better than, than dermal allograft. Long end of the biceps symptom is a reliable alternative and uh, some clinical uh, results should be reported. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful, thank you. Uh, I'd like to now introduce 
uh, Professor Andreas Imhoff from Germany, who will speak on the introduction to tendon transfers for failed rotator cuff repair. Okay, thank you very much. So it's a great honor to be here and to share my ideas and my strategy for tendon transfer, latissimus and peg major. These are my disclosures. And that's what we can see. We can have just rotator cuff, nothing left, not repairable because of muscle atrophy, tendon retraction, fatty infiltration. On the MRI, you don't see anything on the supraspinatus. Intraspinatus, just the, the teres minor is here, rounded. Subscap is not very, really nice. So that is really our problem. Poor tissue quality, massive retraction, scarring of the tendon, fatty muscle infiltration and atrophy. The humeral head is migrating. And we have this problem is not really repairable by conventional method. There are several options. I will not speak about deprived prosectomy, partial repair. I just will speak about latissimus and peg major, scaffolds and other tissue segments we have just heard. Even autoplasty will be the last talk. Now on the left side, tendon transfer peg major or latissimus dorsi on the posterior side just to cover the supraspinatus and the intraspinatus. And this is the clear indication for latissimus dorsi transfer. They have a high level external rotation lag sign, also but a low external rotation lag sign. That's what we call horn blower sign. You cannot keep your horn here and the, the arm is just falling back. You cannot keep it. This is really a pure good indication, but the technique is not really new. Even in the beginning of this century, 34, last century, Episcopo showed it for obstetrical paralysis and Christian Gerber talk, took this idea to treat massive tears of rotator cuff. And this is the technique we are using today. We keep the patient in the lateral decubitus position, the arm is free with a traction device. And we have one incision here on the posterior axillary line, about 15 centimeters, and anterior split. So here, just at the edge of the acromion, at the anterior acromion corridor that you can reach both sides. But before you prepare, remember the anatomy, there are nerves going to the teres minor, the lower subscap nerve, and the other nerve here going to the latissimus dorsi, the toracodrosal nerve, both coming from the posterior cord. Here's the axillary, this is the radial nerve. They are really close. But when you go closer, you see in the anatomy, here's the triceps, that's there's major, that is mystorosy. And if you prepare it, you take both away, you see here the torcal dorsal nerve. So you have to be careful when you dissect it and you just follow closely the latissimus and the teres major, you go to the normal head and go around. And then you have enough tendon because this part of the tendon is small and short, but you have to prepare it closely because it wraps around the humeral shaft and you need it at the end when you try to shift it. And then you have really a long graft here, and here's the muscle, the latissimus dorsi muscle, and you use some fiber wire number two, preparing the tendon before you shift it underneath between delta and intraspinatus and teres major here underneath to go to the anterior part. You keep your grab, here is the tendon here, you have two sutures pulling it underneath to the front before you fix it here to the major tubercle and also anteriorly to the subscap, then you really can cover. If the tendon is not long enough, you also can, you can fix it on the lateral side and you get more external rotation instead of flexion. So you can 
take this advantage, speak with the patient before you do it, what is more important for inflection or external notation, and you can fix it here in Nautilus with swivel lock anchors quite nicely before you close it nicely. But it needs some time for healing. It's really important that you keep an abduction brace for at least six weeks, passive in the first three weeks, and then you go slowly to active because this long tendon must heal. There's one really good study, a review study with 10 studies, 260 patients, because it's not really, you know, you will not find studies with a lot of patients, there's only one. Um, you see the patients are younger, around 58 years, complication rate is quite high, your revision rate is high, but you can reduce the pain and you can anticipate a flexion of 35 degrees, turn of 10 degrees, strength plus 70%. So that's why you get a constant score around 70 patients points, that's what you can really reach. And I just want to show you two patients after failed uh, rev revisions. So it's what we talk in our book about. He had an open reconstruction, failed after infection, after five, six months, and then after three months, I did it here. And you see what he can. He's not still the same function, but it's quite nicely. And he's only 59 and he still can play tennis now. That's what he wanted. Another case, Five months after the last stop transfer, you see how nice he can move his arm, he's completely pain-free, and it gives him back what he wants to do with his sports. So the patient must be younger, that's what he learned. And when you see all these small studies with a lot of patients here together, overall the constant score is around 60 to 70, depends what you on your indication. So what we learned. And we learned quite nicely if it's really a tenodesis or it's external rotation. Um, we did a MGMG, MG, M, uh, EMG study. And what we could see this it was in 2014, published in JCS. Um, if the patient can learn that he should use the other arm in the same direction, he want to do this one, then he can recruit his muscle, his transferred lastissimus dorsi. If not, he has just a tenodesis. So, we need patients who understand the patient must be younger, otherwise we have just a tenodesis. So it's a long learning curve. That's what the patient has to do. That's why we try to use this uh, technique in younger patients around 50 to 60. That's why we have some positive factors. If the subscap is okay, there's minor is okay. But if in previous surgeries and revision cases, the results are never so good. On the anterior part, we have two possibilities for pig major. Here, just above, like Mervertum Rockwood told us, or underneath what we are doing, the upper third, two thirds of the big major underneath the chondrite, and it fixed here to the minor tubercle, not like here to the major tubercle. And that's what it was a quite nice technique because you can just take two thirds of the big major, go underneath here, flip it underneath the chondrite, and then you see how the tension is. You really can use this, you can. Um, have enough strength for internal rotation and the subscap is not really functioning. Just one case, now 70 years old, he had several cases before, subscap release, fixation, tenodesis, then pick major to transfer in 2012, that was his M MRI, and on the other side, left shoulder again, 2018, after several up, um, arthroscopic surgeries, I did a transfer, and that is him now, just one week ago, He's still in Corona times. That's why he had this mask here. You see how happy he is. He just says, I have no limitation in daily activities, even internal rotation on the backside he can have now. And he's now 70 years old and still on both shoulders a good result. So that's what we learn. If 
Peg major transfer is a good indication if just a subscript here, Peg major under the conjoint tendon, reliable results. And if you cannot repair the supraspinatus, Peg major transfer is not beneficial. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Now I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Bill Levine, president of the American Children and Elbow Society, who will speak on balloon indications and techniques. Thanks, everybody, and welcome uh, to this uh, incredible webinar. Here's my disclosure, nothing uh, of interest for this talk. Uh, special thanks to Issacos and Joy and her team and to Buddy, Emilio, and Gus for uh, putting this all together. So as we've been hearing, there are a tremendous number of options for the irreparable rotator cuff tear. And we're gonna talk about balloon arthroplasty. The indications are quite straightforward. Uh, for a massive irreparable cuff tear, that's what it was first FDA, or not FDA, first approved for in Europe and Israel, where it was uh, designed. Uh, Laurent Lafosse and others have also talked about using it as an augment on top of a rotator cuff repair, although that is not what its original intent was. Uh, it was designed in Israel. Uh, it's been used extensively in Europe uh, over the last uh, decade or so. It's a biodegradable polymer, so it is a spacer that is designed to resorb over six months. Uh, there has been an FDA trial in the United States that was just completed and is actually being presented to the FDA uh, next week, and so we will hear about whether or not it does get approved for use in the, FDA, uh, in the U.S. or not. There have been over 10,000 cases since the 2010 launch. Uh, Follow-up data is being collected out to seven years uh, currently. Uh, there's been some uh, reasonable biomechanics study, one by George Athwal, which was published in JSES, which compared uh, the balloon to an uh, intact situation, irreparable tear, and to an SCR. And there were no differences between the balloon and the SCR. Both restored the humeral head position. At Columbia, we've just finished a biomechanical study similar to this, uh, showing what the humeral head spacer effect is, uh, and this will be uh, published uh, in the uh, next uh, six months. The technique is quite straightforward and it's easy. That's either good or bad, depending upon your perspective. Here you see uh, one of my patients. Uh, an arthroscopic debridement is performed. 24 cc's is, uh, of saline is used to infiltrate the balloon. You can see the mass of irreparable cuff tear below or through the balloon. And you have to move the arm through a full range of motion to ensure that the balloon is stable so that it will not uh, migrate. That's one of the rare indication, uh, rare complications. If you think about outcomes, there's the original study, which I'll review quickly, some follow-up studies, one systematic review. I'll briefly mention the FDA multi-center study and then talk about my three patients that contributed to the study. Uh, the original study was from Professor Deckel from Israel, 20 patients. Uh, most of them did reasonably well. There was no control group and uh, no complications in this proof of concept study. There have been two small studies that have had reasonably good results. Again, no control groups and short follow-up, as you can see, with 12.6 months. And here with 44 patients in one year follow-up, 80% uh, patient satisfaction. Uh, unfortunately, this is a bad uh, study, 24 shoulders. And you can see only 46% of uh, patients were satisfied with significant complications and need for revision surgery. So the literature, while not very robust, has some uh, 
uh, small studies that aren't very well done, and then this bad study. Cost effectiveness has been looked at, and this is important, as Tony just mentioned, how expensive some of these technologies are, and it is a cost-effective treatment, uh, at least as currently compared to some of the other options. The systematic review just published in 2019, you can see the results are all over the map. Unfortunately, only 37% of these studies even reported patient satisfaction, and their satisfaction rated ranged from 45 to 100%. So the, the results in the peer-reviewed literature to date have admittedly been quite mixed for this. So you really need a good study, and this is the best study that we're aware of. It's a prospective randomized trial done in North America. It compared a partial rotator cuff repair, unfortunately, at the time of the design of the study, SCR was not as popular, to a balloon. 184 patients were enrolled. I personally uh, enrolled three patients, and all of these patients are now beyond two years follow-up. Here's the first patient. She's a 68-year-old female. She had an arthroscopic cuff repair in 07. That failed. She then had a revision cuff repair in 08. That failed. She lived with it for many years. Uh, she had reasonable active motion, and you can see her x-rays here. Uh, on uh, December 6, 2017, she was involved, uh, introduced into our study. She was randomized to a partial repair. She had increased pain but good motion at her six-month follow-up. Uh, she got a subacromial injection because of the pain. I gave her a second injection because of ongoing pain. She eventually withdrew from the study because she was upset of how poorly she was doing and had to be converted to a reverse. And now she's happy and is doing quite well. The second patient is a 69-year-old female. You can see her MRI showing a massive irreparable cuff tear with proximal migration. She's had three previous surgeries, an open cuff repair, an open revision repair, an open re-revision repair, and in 2015 decided she really couldn't live with it and has been trying non-operative management. She was randomized to a balloon, uh, had the uh, surgery on December uh, 16, 2017, and we just saw her for her two-year unveiling study, and she's thrilled, has no pain and no disability. She loves it, and she's thrilled that she had this particular procedure, so that's one good result uh, from this study. But this is the second patient uh, that I uh, had in this of my three, a uh, 69-year-old right-hand dominant uh, male, uh, had an arthroscopic cuff repair in 13, revision open repair in 14, a re-revision repair with augmentation in 15, uh, was doing well, but then unfortunately uh, did poorly and failed again. Uh, you can see his new MRI, again, showing a massive irreparable cuff tear, no, no, uh, a way we can repair this. And so he was uh, um, randomized to a balloon spacer. He did great, was playing tennis, was thrilled with it until 22 months post-op and then couldn't live with it. And he likewise uh, got converted to a reverse total shoulder. He's now six months out from that and he's playing tennis, thrilled, and he rates himself as 100%. So in summary, Gus, uh, the uh, balloon is easy. It does not burn bridges. It seems to be cost-effective and it's well-tolerated but it's easy, which can also be a bad thing. It means it's very prone to abuse, as we've seen in other uh, technologies in orthopedics. Why does it work? Well, it does create a spacer for the six months that it's there, but why would it have durability after that? That remains an unknown question, and we still don't know where we will be in five years uh, with this particular technology. Thanks very much for your attention. Excellent, thank you very much. Uh, and then finally, uh, Giovanni Giacomo, 
uh, from Italy will speak to us about introduction for reverse arthroplasty to treat failed rotator cuff repair. Giovanni. Okay, thank you, my friends. I decided to spend these five minutes about uh, the reverse more on the biomechanics because it's a more dynamic concept instead of a clinical result that you can find on any paper. Okay, that is my disclosure. This is the classical picture. You can see on the right side, the failure rotator cuff that we treated with a reverse. Usually the patient selection is very clear. Our patient that uh, complain uh, pain functional shoulder, pain pseudoparalytic shoulder, or painful impairment of daily living activities. Re-repairing as we have seen in the previous talks, um, very often are contraindicated because it's not easy from the taking care point of view. Rotator cuff tendon loss, muscle fat infiltration, proximal migration of humeral head, and very often this uh, surgery is a palliative surgery and could fail to relieve pain and restore the shoulder function. Tendon transfer can be an option, but usually is for younger patients, require extensive rehabilitation, some white unpredictable results, and may not be as successful in older patients, especially in those with osteoarthritis. This is a, a video that shows how is the biomechanics of the reverse. We have a reverse of the anatomy. We have a reverse of convexity and concavity. And the prosthesis is the new fulcrum of the glenohumeral joint. And the, the new engine is the deltoid. Very often is the only muscle that we have. Sometimes we hope to have some infraspinatus or teres minor to gain some external rotation. Or sometimes if, if we miss completely external rotation, we can add a transfer of latissimus dorsi. Anyway, the key point is that most of the time, the only engine is the deltoid muscle. Characteristic of the reverse is the medialization of the center of rotation. What means? Give a look to this picture. This is the center of the rotation of normal anatomy. This is P is the insertion of the deltoid. And when apply the toy force to the humerus, the anatomic moment harm is arm length, that is the pink line, by the force that is applied to the humerus that is broken down from the deltoid. And the force is PE. So the anatomic moment arm is the pink line for PE. When we medialize, we have an improvement because we have regained much more arm length, but very interesting, if you give a look here, because the shape of the humerus component, we have a medialization of the humerus and something changed in the alpha angle and we P1, E1 force that is bigger than P and E. So we have two positive Factor one is the arm length. The second factor is that we have much more strength applied to humerus. But the problem is that we have a shortening of the deltoid, but we can go on with this problem because we make a distalization of the humeral component. So we put again tension on the deltoid and we have in the reverse three positive factor, arm length, resultant force that lead to a very good reverse moment harm. And because the distalization, we have a good deltoid tension. 
we could speak about the bleak score that keep everything much more complicated. We can apply this concept on the calf, on the deltoid, but we could discuss about this, which is the downside of the reverse. The, the downside of reverse is the notching that you know very well that can lead to instability. So we have to discuss from the biomechanical point of view how to avoid notching, how to avoid the, the correlated instabilities very often, and how to gain stability, ROM, and strength. This is very complex. You have to know the anatomy. Very often when we have a pseudoparalytic shoulder or we have a irreparable calf tear, we have a superior dislocation of the humeral head and we have a superior inclination of the glenoid. We call this superior tilt. In some cases, of course, we can have also a retroversion of the glenoid that fortunately in this set of patients is not so frequent. So it's very rare to have in this patient a glenoid that we call B1, B2. Very important uh, is to keep in mind that the B2 is more, much more frequent in other kind of pattern pathology that is the arthritis. We have also to know very well the anatomy of the humerus. It's very well known that we have to respect the retroversion of the humeral head. Very important is the also varus valgus of the stem, as you will see, can influence the immunization lateralization of the humerus. And another interesting concept from Wallogin-Barsh is the eccentricity of the humeral head respect to humerus. There is a medialization and posteriorization of the center of the humeral head respect to the center of the diaphysis. How to avoid notching? This is the notching. You can see the polyethylene is impinging against the neck. To avoid, we can work on the glenoid with the lateralization. So lateralization through a graft, through a wedge, can help to avoid the notching. But something changed in the biomechanics. Another way to avoid the notching is uh, not only to lateralize, but to work with the eccentricity of the glenosphere. We can use this kind of eccentric glenosphere to have an inferior offset that, of course, can avoid the impingement and seems very important also to have 10 degree or inferior tilt to have a better ROM and to avoid once again the impingement. As well, we can work only on the other side, I mean on the humerus, changing the morphology of the stem. The more varus is, the better it is. The more valgus it is, the more possibility to have an impingement you have. Also, the discussion is open on onlay or inlay. I prefer personally to use onlay. I feel much more comfortable because the lateralization and because avoiding the impingement, that is only personal opinion. And at the same time, we can lateralize, middleize, distalize, and proximalize using the centricity this time on the humoral component, as you can see. So you, it's very complex, the biomechanics. We can have different components that can help or cannot help from the biomechanical part of view. Anyway, it seems that lateralization of the glenoid or them both or only or the humerus can help because you can improve the tension in the calf so this patient could gain more external rotation, especially if there is a teres minor. Where is the battle is now? 
the discussion is, uh, is open, medialization versus lateralization. The discussion is open to fix or not to fix the subscapularis and to gain the external rotation may could be useful to do a latissimus dorsi transfer. Thank you very much. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, we have a few minutes uh, for questions uh, and then we will uh, wrap up because that'll be our uh, one hour. Uh, Professor Calvo. Okay, yeah, yeah. We, we, have, we, have, we have several questions about the uh, convenience or of tying or not tying the media row in double row, in double row repair. And this is a question to uh, um, Dr. Itoy about the convenience of tying or not tying the media row. Uh, because if we tie it, uh, there is a risk, a higher risk of gap formation, but we also increase the load to failure. So what was your, your view on the uh, indication for tying the media row or not tying the media row? AG, please. Well, I showed the biomechanical data of our studies and uh, I didn't tell you the clinical outcome, but in our small series of uh, transosseous equivalent repair without tying the media row, the retail rate of the type one was uh, 4%, the detachment of the tendon from the greater tuberosity but the retail rate of type two is zero, zero percent. So I think it's a good thing to untie the media roll, but there's no uh, consensus in our team during this meeting. I agree. I, I cannot hear you, Emilio. Yeah, sorry, what about the other speakers, Giovanni? Do, do you recommend tying the media row or not? Um, it's up to what kind of cuff I'm going to repair. If I have a good lateralization, a good uh, uh, quality of the tissue, I tie it that. But uh, uh, if I feel that I cannot lateralize and the quality of the tissue is not so good, I prefer not to tie it. So tension is important. Andreas? Yeah, since I had some medial row failure, I stopped tying the medial row. I cannot prove it. I, can't, I have no studies, just experience. And I think we will uh, strangulate the, the tendons in not in an anatomic way. That's why we never do it anymore. Was your, your approach to Giuseppe, please? I stopped doing a double row repair uh, some years ago. So actually, <laughs> I'm not confident with that. <laughs> but according to my experience, at that time, we used to tie the knots. And I had some cases, but not so many some cases of a medial retear, so a type 2 retear. So uh, based on my feeling, I would recommend not to tie. But this is not an issue for me again, because I, I don't use double row repair. I prefer to medialize just on the medial edge of the footprint, uh, my, reattach my reattachment of, um, of the rotator cuff. Okay. So reduce, I reduce the tension just to medialize. Tony, could you please provide us your opinion on this uh, controversy? Yeah, um, I, there's no question in the biomechanical studies that tying the medial row will increase the strength about 10%. Uh, and some people think that might improve the biology. But what we've seen clinically, Angolia and Korea has reported and others, is exactly what Andreas Imhoff reported. And that is when they do fail, it's the, at the tendon muscle junction, which is a really tough repair uh, to go back and try to reconstruct. With some of the new scaffolds, maybe not as difficult. So my feeling has been that 
it's not enough value to tie those in a typical rotator cuff repair. So I generally do not tie them just like Andreas said, so that I can avoid that type two tear. The one place where I've used it a little bit more often is since we've learned in certain cases where the tissue is very thin, it might be helpful to put a thin scaffold over the top. I can use those medial sutures to help tether down or, or hold my small scaffold medially, uh, which is the primary purpose of it, and then fix it all laterally. So that's where I have been using it, but I don't use it routinely for the double row repairs. This is very interesting because there were also many questions about uh, the indications of biological augmentation, because we could use this kind of augmentation using scaffolds with or without uh, PRP stem cells, whatever, in many cases, but it, it's, a, it's an expensive treatment. So what, what are your indications for uh, biologic or uh, uh, biologic augmentation? I just want to make a comment about that from the U.S. marketplace where our, we know our fees are much higher than the rest of the world in typical. But just to give you an idea, idea for PRP, it's typically more than a thousand U.S. dollars. Uh, for stem cells, it's uh, more than 2,500. And actually in places like New York and Los Angeles, it can be over $5,000. And the scaffolds with the insertion devices can be anywhere from six to $8,000. So imagine that you used all three of those to increase the biology, and that was 12 to 14,000 US dollars just for that material, and that you tried to use that in every single case. Well, the cost of healthcare would be completely unreasonable. Uh, so we've had to try to figure out those cases where it makes a difference. And of course, on revision surgery, that will be more likely to use some of these products. And as I said, uh, some of these biological grafts are so expensive, we really have to figure out a synthetic model that can be made for 50 US dollars or 100 US dollars and can be one-fifth or one-tenth the cost of the biological ones. That's what we hope to see in the future. I know that's not what industry hopes to see, but that's what we have to do to be able to give it to our patients. Well, very, that was very interesting. Thank you very much for your, for your answer. But there were also some, some um, questions about the hypothetical risk of infection in patients with um, revision cases where an augmentation, is, a biological augmentation is, is performed. So what do you think about that? Biological augmentation in, augmentation in revision cases. I, I, I don't know what the rest of the world's literature is, but so far the US literature doesn't suggest that it's any higher than the typical infection rate in revision surgery. So it doesn't look like at this time with the dermal grafts that we're using and some of the newer synthetic grafts that they were introducing a higher level infection, but certainly it's higher than a primary case. Interesting, thank you, thank you. Um, I have a question for Europeans. Um, Giovanni, Andrea, or Giuseppe, do you have any, any experience with the balloon, with this recommended balloon? Not so much experience to give a, a personal opinion. I used uh, in a few cases with personally with not excellent uh, results. Probably maybe I didn't perform the right pest installation. My, in my hand doesn't work so well. But I need I even... Sorry, but maybe probably because uh, before doing surgery, we stress very much more, very often this kind of patient, a very good rehabilitation in emphasizing core stability scapulothoracic motion. And I think personally that the balloon helps in the rehabilitation program. 
He's happy, please. Yes. No, I don't have experience about that. I, uh, regarding uh, suggestions uh, by Giovanni, I agree. And probably the um, strategy suggested by Laurent Lafosse uh, is, uh, is really interesting. So uh, protecting rotator cuff repair because it, it improves uh, shoulder kinematics. The problem is that the cost is too high just to protect a standard rotator cuff repair. This. That's interesting because you have also um, talked about superior cathode reconstruction. Sometimes the indications of SCR versus the balloon are coincidental. Sometimes they are the same. So do you think, do you think there, is a, there is a specific type of patient in whom the balloon could be, could be indicated instead of superior cathode reconstruction? Probably in patients with a very low demand uh, where surgery should be very, very, very fast because of general health conditions, uh, it could be an option because of course, operative time of SCR is much longer than, than, than a balloon. And if the uh, results is just limited to a short term and the demand is very low, probably is a good option. Yeah, that, that, that could be probably a good indication for the balloon. Elderly yeah. patient with uh, low demand, fast surgery, and could be a good indication. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Andreas, uh, there was a question about uh, tendon transfers. Uh, it was a very excellent, very interesting lecture about the lattice more dorsal and the pig major. There are some, some surgeons who recommend to use the lat dorsi for, for, for subscapularis stirs, repairable subscapularis stirs. What is your view on, on, on that uh, uh, transfer? Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, Bassem, Bassem has a quite good series now, even published, but it's very difficult. And you remember where all the nerves are going around the, the head and the shaft, the proximal shaft. So it's not so easy. And I wouldn't, that's why I do, do not recommend it. And also the, the latissimus is not so long enough. So that's why um, there is a biomechanical background, yes, because the direction of the latissimus and the subscap are almost the same, and it's not the same for latissimus. And so, um, no, I, I don't recommend it. Interesting. Uh, there were some questions about how to do the releases in primary and revision cases. Uh, but it's what had, had to leave, but I think we can uh, comment on that. Uh, what is your, the role uh, for you in primary or vision cases of two types of releases? The spine of the scapular releases and the posterior inferior capsular release when doing a uh, rotator cuff tear repair. Uh, Professor Itoi? The cuff repair indication uh, uh, during the cuff repair. Uh, what's the indication for capsular release? Yeah. That's the question, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think the, the, the elevation is less than 90 degrees. Then I usually perform the capsular release. But uh, other than that, I think uh, during the rehab process, the range of motion gradually improves. So I'm not so aggressive about doing the capsule release during the cup repair. And Tony, you provide your, your approach in these cases? Yes. So typically, if uh, the tear repair is done within the first three months, there's very little release that's indicated. 
Uh, most of those uh, will be very mobile or mobile enough. Uh, even a two tendon tear um, in some patients, somewhere around uh, three months, we get into the fact that not only is the capsule tight, but we start to see the change in the pination of the muscle. And that's why it's nice to get to them early. When I have a two tendon tear, I, as Buddy, will release quite aggressively, uh, particularly if I'm getting in on that case well after three months, uh, one year, a year and a half, and I will release underneath the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and if the head is centered, I leave the posterior band alone, but if the head is up, then I will release the posterior band because I'm not worried about posterior instability. That doesn't happen in this situation. And then I can mobilize it back over to the side. On the front side, if it's the anterior superior, I will release that pretty regularly, taking the coracohumeral ligament off of the coracoid, but we leave the lateral part of the rotator irritable intact because of the integration between the supraspinatus and infraspinatus. And I think that's very important. It's also important to look at the three-dimensional anatomy when you repair it because it's not sort of straight up and down, it's tilted. And so you want to repair the subscap to its place and the supra is going to come over slightly more laterally, but leaving that band of tissue in place helps guide you to the right repair. So those are the primary ones. There was one other question about, do I release the suprascapular nerve? And I, I don't routinely do that, but if I see uh, the neurogenic pattern of signal change in the muscle, I always release it in that setting. Uh, or if I have a positive ENG, which is not very common, or in my larger revision chronic repairs when the patient has a lot of muscle atrophy. And I do it because I'm just hoping it helps, but I don't know for sure if it'll make a difference. Thank, thank you, Tony. Uh, Andreas, your indications to do a um, capsular release in rotator cuff tear repair? Yeah, even in semi-acute cases, we always have some adhesions in the rotator intervals. I always open the interval, I release the subscap, I go around the glenoid because that will help the external rotation in adduction. Posteriorly, it depends if it's chronic or acute. If it's chronic, yes, you have to release the suprascapular nerve. Otherwise, you get traction and you get some atrophy. Um, it really depends on the situation. So between acute and chronic, acute you can do sometimes, but in chronic you have to do it. And do you routinely uh, release the coracohumeral ligament? Oh, yes. <laughs> Giovanni, your approach for uh, uh, yes. releases? I always test uh, with the patient under anesthesia before performing the calf repair. I always test in elevation, abduction, external rotation, abduction, internal rotation, the passive range of motion. And very, very often, if there is some light restriction, I do a light, very light mobilization under anesthesia. And this work like a normal release of the capsula. Sometimes the, scap the capsula is very stiff and I check where the stiff is and when the limitation of ROM is and I perform a total or selective capsulotomy. Okay. And Giuseppe, you perform routinely a capsula release? No, I don't. I do my capsule release on the, on the top of the glenoid always. Uh, so I release the calf from the bursal side and the articular side as well. But I don't do posterior uh, capsule release. 
usually don't. Okay, thank you. Let's go finally uh, with a question about um, reverse arthroplasty, Giovanni. Uh, you have uh, showed us the excellent results of reverse arthroplasty, but uh, sometimes we try to preserve the joint in spite of these good results. So um, what are your indications to perform a reverse arthroplasty in patients without arthritis? Or do you try to preserve the joint as much as possible doing uh, tendon transfer, superior casual reconstruction, whatever? Or do you, in some cases, go directly to a reverse? Yeah, you, you know very, very well that the key point is the, is the age. The older is the patient, the more prone I am to do a reverse prosthesis. The younger is the patient, and don't ask me which is the cutting age. You know, we don't know exactly which is the cutting age. It's a more or less a biological. So the age is the first issue. The second issue is, uh, in my experience, very often it's not so easy for the patient after a calf failure to accept uh, maybe two other surgeries. Very often they ask me for, doctor, I want just one surgery. I can do this, I can do the latissimus dorsi transfer, I can do the superior calf, uh, capsular reconstruction, and if it doesn't work, we do something they get uh, worried. And so it's, a, it's like the instability, is a very patient selection uh, uh, surgery. So I need to see the case, I need to speak with the patients, uh, and uh, then I can decide. There is no general rule. The age is the key point, of course. Okay, so you don't want to say a figure about the age. So let's go to Andreas then. So Andreas, uh, let's talk about a patient who is 65 years old, uh, he has no arthritis, irreparable the tear, external and internal rotation are preserved, but the, uh, the um, infraspinatus is torn. And you can tell your patient, well, we can, we can try a tendon transfer that will take um, six weeks of immobilization and a long uh, uh, rehabilitation period, or we can either uh, go for a reverse. Uh, that will take much lower, much shorter time of recovery. Mm -hmm. So this, this happens to me every day. So it's, it's, it's difficult to tell a patient that he has to, to keep a, a sling for six or eight weeks and then to start in a long period of uh, rehabilitation mm -hmm. when you have the, the possibility of doing a reverse. How, how do you approach these patients in the difficult age when it's difficult to decide between a tendon transfer versus a reverse. Yeah, I understand. I don't see it every day like you, so. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest question is what do you really want to do? If you want to go for tennis and these patients, they always, they, sometimes they really lose the intraspinatus because of some nerve problems. Uh, so always start with a um, nerve conduction examination. You see what, what the suprascapular nerve is doing. Um, just for interesting and uh, for interest and then if you really want to go back to his sports level you have a lot of patients they are so active in in their age group so i cannot consider to do a reverse prosthesis so i tell them you can do some physical therapy try if it works maybe it works uh, because they are my, most of them they have still the teres minor and so they can do otherwise if they Take the chance, I do a transfer. Tony. Okay. How, 
Sorry, I how do you Leo work? Yeah, sorry, sorry, Gus. I think we're almost out of time. We're uh, okay. into, uh, uh, 20 minutes over. So um, I think that's been a wonderful uh, conference. Uh, I want to thank all of the uh, participants who hung in there with us uh, while we figured out the technical difficulties for a half hour. I want to thank uh, Emilio and Buddy Savoie, who will lead the uh, Isakoff Shoulder Committee. And then, of course, all of our speakers today uh, who did an amazing job. So uh, thank you all. I want to thank the uh, Kairos uh, company for their sponsorship and the Isakoff uh, for their uh, devotion to uh, world health education. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Be safe.